Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harlan. I'm a prof at York University in Toronto. We're now in the series on ancient apocalypticism, focusing primarily on the origins of apocalypticism within Judean culture. Ultimately, we'll be getting into things like the Book of Daniel, the Book of Revelation, and many other non-canonical examples of apocalyptic literature that give us a glimpse into a worldview that existed among some Judeans in the Hellenistic and in the Roman periods. But to begin with, we need to consider the question of where did apocalypticism come from? What were its basic building blocks and where did they come from? As with several other episodes in this apocalypticism series, what this episode represents is me sitting down after having had a three-hour class with some students on this topic and me giving a quick summary, you could say, of some of the material we covered and walk you through some of the ancient sources that give us a glimpse into the, in this case, the origins of apocalypticism. We're going to be talking about, in the, this episode and the next two episodes, three main cultural backgrounds that help us to understand the origins of apocalypticism. We're not always going to be having evidence of direct relationship. In other words, it won't always be that this was borrowed from that. But what we'll find is if by studying the ancient Near East, by studying Zoroastrianism, and by studying Israelite culture, we can begin to see the building blocks that came to inform the apocalyptic worldview. So today we're going to be considering ancient Mesopotamia and what it can tell us about the origins of apocalypticism. The main focus of my discussion today is on what scholars have identified and call the combat myth. If you turn to chapter 12 of Revelation, I'm just going to read a passage here that will at least set the stage for what we're trying to figure out. In chapter 12 of the, uh, John's Apocalypse, this is what we read. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a wrought iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God, to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she was a, had a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now we're going to come back to John's apocalypse later on when we get to the first century CE. Right now we're going to go back to 3000 BCE to see some of the building blocks that came to become a basis of this way of talking about the apocalyptic worldview. Namely the focus on a dragon here, a chaotic threat, a monster 
that is defeated by the forces of good. This is essential to the apocalyptic worldview, a consistent battle between God and Satan. Satan sometimes being expressed in terms of a dragon or Leviathan. And that ultimately God has a plan to defeat forever Satan or Leviathan. That's central to the apocalyptic worldview as I explained it to you last week and that we'll learn throughout the rest of the course when we get into the literature itself. But today we're going back to 3000 BCE to see that within the ancient Near East there was a common mythological pattern that recurs across the board in Sumerian literature, Akkadian literature, Babylonian literature, Assyrian literature, all of the civilizations of ancient Mesopotamia, beginning way back in 3000 BCE and coming right up until the end of those civilizations. Not only that, but we'll find this combat myth, as scholars call it, within Canaanite literature, or better put, when we look at the evidence from Ugarit, one of the main cities north of Israel that has been excavated, material from about 1300 BCE, we once again find a certain pattern that involves this combat between a young god and a chaotic threat god. And this idea of the young god slaughtering and killing the chaotic threat in order to re-establish order. The consistent plot line we find in these stories about a god triumphing over chaos, a chaotic monster, a monster god, the plot line involves this, a force depicted as a monster, a god, threatens cosmic and political order, resulting in fear and confusion among the assembly of the gods. Remember, we're dealing with polytheistic cultures here. The assembly of the gods is unable to find a commander to defeat the evil force among the older gods and calls on a young god. The young god successfully defeats the monster, restoring order. The result of this is the god is acclaimed the king of the gods. Off the bat, though, let me say something that's quite different about the combat myth compared to the apocalyptic worldview. In other words, a distinguishing mark despite the fact that it seems to inform the worldview. This combat, in most of these mythologies, is thought to be a recurring element, that chaos will once again threaten order, that once again a god will need to come forth to set back chaos. This differs from the Judean apocalyptic worldview in which the, the idea is that God has a plan to ultimately obliterate forever Satan, Leviathan, the threatening, chaotic, and evil, in the apocalyptic worldview, force. Let me go through a few examples of this combat myth so that you know what I'm talking about. The first one is an Akkadian example. So in Mesopotamia, remember that there's a series of civilizations or cultures with considerable continuity among them that follow one another. First of all, down further south between the two rivers, between Euphrates and uh, Tigris. Remember Mesopotamia, the word means between two rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates. Down at the lowest point near the Persian Gulf, at first, beginning around 3000 BCE, we get the first evidence of written civilization. That civilization is known as Sumer. Slightly further north, a little bit later, we begin to have evidence of Akkad, the civilization of Akkad. 
A little bit later, a little bit further north, we begin to have evidence of Babylonian civilization centered on Babylon. And finally, when we get to the later period into around, we're talking even into the 700s BCE, we begin to have Ashur in further north again as the basis of Assyrian civilization. But what's interesting about this, despite the uh, multiple civilizations we're talking about here, is the continuity we find in the way in which they think about the gods, in the way this, they tell their stories about the gods, including this combat myth we are talking about here. I want to give you the first example being an Akkadian example from probably emerging from around 1000 BCE, or a bit earlier at least. And this is the story of Nunurta versus Anzu, which comes to us in both an old Babylonian version and a later Babylonian version. The story of Nunurta and Zu is quite interesting. It begins with Anzu being appointed as the assistant to the head and king god, Enlil. Enlil is the king of the gods. Anzu is the assistant of Enlil. He sees Enlil's power. He sees Enlil's ability to control things and begins to be jealous of Enlil's kingship. Kingship in ancient Mesopotamia in these myth mythologies is sometimes represented by objects especially what is called the Tablet of Destinies. There was this idea that there was a tablet that had written down within it all the things that had happened and all the things that will happen. The God who possesses the Tablet of Destinies becomes king because of this power in knowing what has happened and what will happen. So Enlil is the king in this Mesopotamian mythology who possesses the Tablet of Destinies. But Anzu, his assistant, is eyeing it and wishing he could be king. Anzu decides he's going to steal the Tablet of Destinies when Enlil's in a little bit of an awkward situation, namely when Enlil's taking his bath. So the story goes that Enlil's taking his bath. His assistant Anzu, these are both gods, steals the Tablet of Destinies and runs away with it off to the mountains. And in the story, it begins to be that Anzu is sort of given as the equivalent of the mountains themselves, to some degree. Anzu is depicted as an eagle-like god with wings and a lion head quite often in some of the imagery that we have. So a better way of putting it is Anzu flies off with the Tablet of Destinies. What does this mean? It means Anzu is now king. Enlil definitely is not, and it throws into confusion all the rest of the gods. Chaos reigns as a result of this action of Anzu. Chaos is threatening the order of the gods. These two concepts, chaos and order, are the essence of the point of the story to some degree in ancient Mesopotamia. There's a focus on these ideas and the need to maintain order within society of the gods, which reflects, as you can imagine, the need to maintain order among human society. But human society isn't even in this particular story here. It's all uh, either before humans are created or humans just don't have anything much to do with it. So Anzu now has the Tablet of Destinies, runs away, and the gods are depicted as totally flabbergasted and they go silent. In Mesopotamian mythology, when the gods go silent, you know there's big trouble. Basically, the whole society of the gods is on the brink of falling apart because of what has happened, and the gods know it. 
they are very terrified by this situation. They know that something must be done in order to get back the Tablet of Destinies. And so they hold interviews, is how the mythology goes next. Anu, the father of the gods, who's the, the previous generation from Enlil that we've already referred to, suggests that interviews be held, and he's the interviewer. Basically, one after another of the older generations of gods gets brought forward, gets interviewed, gets offered the kingship if he can actually get back the Tablet of Destinies, if he can slay Anzu and get back the Tablet of Destinies, each of these gods is offered to be the king. And not only that, and this is important in Mesopotamian mythology, that a temple will be established and that rites will be established that represent this kingship, that represent the superiority of that god among the gods in, in the society of the gods. And each of the interviewed gods says, this job is impossible. I can't do it. There's no way. What happens next is the god of wisdom, Ea, gets consulted on what to do. And he talks to Mammy or Balet Eli, who is the mother of the gods. And he says to her, is there someone who you can bring forward? And Balet Eli or Mammy, the mother of the gods, brings forward Ninurta. Ninurta is going to be the hero of this particular combat myth, as you can imagine. The story then goes that Ninurta has two different battles with Anzu, with the first one being unsuccessful and the second battle being totally successful. It seems that Anzu, among one of his superpowers, you could say, is to throw out all his feathers and to bring back his feathers. And this, this slogan he uses to use this power is wing to wing. This distracts Ninurta when Ninurta is fighting and makes it hard for him to get at Anzu. On top of that, Anzu has the Tablet of Destinies. The Tablet of Destinies tells you just about everything, about everything. And one of the things it allows Anzu to know is the way in which the arrow itself was made. And so Anzu has the power to disassemble an arrow that is shot at him back to its component parts. The wood going back to wood, the feather going back to bird, the parts going back to their original parts. So in the first battle, unsuccessful. The second battle, however, Ea gives Ninurta clear advice on what to do. He says this, When Anzu is about to use his superpower in which the feathers go out and come back, use a disguised arrow that looks like a feather and release it at the perfect time, so that Anzu won't realize an arrow is coming. So then, Ninurta follows this advice of Ea, the god of wisdom, and successfully slays Anzu in the second battle. The result of this is that Ninurta himself, the younger god, the younger generation god, is not an important god, you could say, until this happens in the story. It's what makes Ninurta, the king of the gods, this younger god, now will reign over all the gods. Let me read a passage that the poetic way that this author uses in order to ex express this restoration of order and what it means for Ninurta. Let kingship re-enter Ekur, the place. Let the norms return to the father, thy begetter. Let built shrines reappear. Let the cult sites be ever set up in the four quarters. Let thy cult sites re-enter Ekur. 
let your name be glorified and potent before the gods. It's emphasized elsewhere here that now Ninurta is the supreme god, the king of the gods, because of this action of killing the chaos monster that was threatening the order of the society of the gods. So this is the sort of story we're talking about here. This is just one example, but the pattern is repeated in various places. Another one that I need to mention to you, although we can't go into it in detail, comes from the Babylonian period. What we have here from the Babylonian period is a story of how the young god Marduk came to be the supreme god. And lo and behold, as you can imagine, Marduk is the patron deity of Babylon. So it's, these stories are simultaneously political statements, you could say, about the supremacy of an empire and using the establishment of the god of Babylon as the king of the gods as a way of saying that Babylon is now reigning over the rest of the civilizations nearby. This particular one appears in what is known as Enuma Elish, or When on High. This story is actually the story not only of Marduk slaying Tiamat, Tiamat being representative of the salt water of the sea, but it is also the story of creation. So in this particular version of the combat myth, this isn't always the case, but sometimes the combat myth is linked up with this notion of a creation. So that the god who slays the chaotic threat creates the world or humans out of this situation. Just to quickly summarize this particular myth mythology and how it relates to the combat myth, the story goes that at the beginning of all things, there were just two main gods. There was Tiamat, salt water, sea, an ocean, and Absu, fresh water, and that these two were the original gods. The story goes is that they gave birth to the next generation of the gods. They begin to get troubled by all the noise that their kids make, and they find that the gods they made are more trouble than they're worth. Absu starts to say to himself, this is so bothersome that I just want to do away with these children altogether. He has this plan to actually get rid of and kill his children. What happens, though, is the god of wisdom, which is one of the offspring of Absu and Tiamat, Ea, we've encountered him before, gets word of this plan that Absu has to do away with his children, with these other gods. So Ea and the other gods make a plan on what to do. Ultimately, Ea kills Absu and establishes his home on the fresh water. And so often in Mesopotamian mythology, you will encounter the idea of Ea's home being Absu. As you can imagine, the wife of Absu is not too happy about this. Saltwater, personified. Tiamat, this serpent, dragon-like god who represents the salt water, is very upset with this and has a plan for revenge. Along with a variety of other gods she creates in order to fight against the other gods, she also has Kingu, one of these figures she creates, as her commander. She sets out to battle and fight the other gods and ultimately wishes to destroy them. So in this story, Tiamat the embodiment of salt water, the ocean, the sea, is the chaos monster that needs to be killed.
in order to avert the, the whole destruction of the society of the gods. In this case, Marduk, a young up-and-coming god, as I mentioned, historically he's the god of Babylon. But in the story, he's the one who steps up, who successfully slays Tiamat, slays ocean, slays, splits the sea. And from splitting the sea, actually creates the universe from the body of this slayed dragon, Tiamat. He then also kills the other forces that were on the side of Tiamat, including the commander Kingu. And from the blood of Kingu, as you may be familiar with this one, he creates human beings from the blood of Kingu. So there you have another example of this common pattern. Chaos monster, God threatening the order of the gods, a young God, up-and-coming God, being called in or stepping up in order to slay the monster. Sometimes slaying the monster might entail creation, but sometimes it does not. The next example I want to give you gives you a bridge from Mesopotamia, culturally speaking, over to Canaan. Canaanite examples of this mythology are quite important for understanding how the combat myth makes its way into the Hebrew Bible. And we'll get to those examples soon enough. In Israelite culture, we also have the combat myth. But the Canaanite instances of it, more specifically the Ugaritic examples that we have, show us that in the same cultural sphere of the Israelites, that this pattern was also quite prominent. The Canaanite examples are from the 1300s BCE. And these tell the story of Hadad, one of the principal deities of the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, let me just remind you of what they are, uh, some of the main ones that we'll encounter. You have El as the king of the gods, the main father of the gods and king of the gods. You have Hadad, also known as Baal, Lord. And you have Anat. These are the three principal deities we're going to be dealing with that are part of the pantheon of the Ugaritic pantheon. Ugarit, remember, is a town north of Israel but that this is part of what is known as Canaanite territory in the Hebrew Bible. So the two examples we have from the Ugaritic material involve Baal, Hadad, Lord, Baal, slaying Yom. Those of you who are familiar with Hebrew and remember that Ugaritic is, has a re direct relationship with, with Hebrew in terms of language, might know that Yom is the Hebrew word for sea. It is the Ugaritic word for sea. So here we have Baal versus the sea personified, Yam. And Yam is actually represented here again, similar to Tiamat, as a serpentine or dragon-like monster. The sea in general in ancient Mesopotamia and in Israelite thought and in, in the apocalyptic worldview, the sea is often representative of chaos. Here Baal and Yam battle it out. We actually don't have the fully preserved story of Baal versus Yam, the sea. But what we do have is the culmination of the story. We have bits and pieces throughout. We have hints of the gods feeling hopeless that Yam is starting to dominate. Uh, and, and a god needs to step up. So this is sort of hinted at in the portions we do have preserved, but it's not fully preserved. We then come to the point at which Baal himself is battling 
with Yam. So in this case, we don't have the full progression of the plot, but we have the culmination especially uh, preserved for us. It talks about this final battle. When Yam was strong, he did not sink down. His joints did not quiver. His form did not crumple. Kothar, another assistant to Baal, fetched down two clubs and proclaimed their names. It says what their names are next here. And it says, he says, expel Yam, expel Yam, the sea, the threatening sea power, from his throne. Nahar, the river, is another name for Yam, from the seat of his dominion. Do you dance from Baal's hand like an eagle from his fingers, these weapons? Strike the crown prince, Yam. Between the eyes of Judge Nahar, river, let Yam, sea, collapse and fall to the earth. And the club danced from the hand of Baal like an eagle from his fingers. It struck the crown of, of Prince Yam between the eyes of Judge Nahar. Yam collapsed and fell to the earth. His joints quivered and his form crumpled. Baal dragged out Yam and laid him down. He made an end of Judge Nahar. Remember, Nahar and Yam are the same. So there you have the culmination of the story. You then have uh, the story breaking away but at least clearly saying to you, Yam is indeed dead, Baal shall be king. So this idea of the establishment of the kingship of the God who successfully sets back the chaos monster is once again uh, quite clearly evident here. And the next story about Baal is Baal versus Mot. And those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew might know that Mot is the Hebrew way of saying death. It's also the Ugaritic way of saying death. So here we have Baal Hadad battling it out with personified death. But what's interesting, at the beginning of this myth, we have the recollection of some of the previous things that have happened. And there we have Yam, the sea, also referred to as Lotan, which is an equivalent for Leviathan. And as you may know, Leviathan is in the Hebrew Bible as the Israelite example of this chaos monster that in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh is said to have conquered and, and destroyed. He's also described in this little passage here that gives us more about Yom from the previous story as a serpent with seven heads. So this has quite a direct relationship to some of the other personifications of chaos and evil that we'll encounter later on in apocalypticism, namely the dragon that is fought by Archangel Michael in the Judean examples, including uh, Book of Revelation. I won't go into the details of Baal versus Mot, except to say that, once again, there's a story about a god, Mot, establishing himself in a position of power that threatens other gods. Baal himself actually dies in the process of fighting, but then gets brought back to life in order to succeed in finally destroying Mot. So hopefully this gives you a sense now of a widespread pattern of how the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites, and we'll soon see the Israelites thought about the gods and the way in which they expressed the preeminence of a god, the way in which they expressed the superiority and kingship of their god, was often using these stories about how their god set back chaos by destroying the chaos monster god. Let's take a look now at the Israelite examples. Some Israelite authors have in their mind this similar pattern of explaining the superiority of their God, Yahweh. 
and uh, therefore how it made its way into the Hebrew Bible, and from there came to play an important role within the apocalyptic worldview. Take a look at Psalm 74 to begin with. Remember that the Psalms that we have preserved in the Hebrew Bible uh, are attributed to David. So David is the king of Israel way back in around 1000 BCE. Some of these that are attributed to David may well go back quite far. Some of them, however, may go as late as the exile, the 500s BCE, and perhaps a little even, even a little later. What the Psalms are are a collection of songs, songs of praise, songs of calling out for God's help, songs of calling out in almost anger to God. But they're songs addressed to Yahweh, addressed to Elohim or Yahweh, God. In the midst of several of these songs addressed to God, once in a while the authors reflect their knowledge of the combat myth we've been looking at and their particular take on the combat myth, which in this case involves Yahweh as the God who restores order, who successfully sets back chaos. These authors seem to have this mythology in their mind and have it on, on the ready, you could say, to call on it in order to express the power of God, to express the superiority of God, to show how praiseworthy God is, or to call on God to help in the same way as he showed his power in the past in slaying Leviathan. Please, God, come and do so again. And we'll see this happening in these few examples that I'm going to look at. Take a look at Psalm 74. In the midst of that song, in verses 12 to 17, we get a, catch a glimpse of something that's in the mind of this author here. Yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the earth. You divided the sea, Yam, by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. But look what's linked up with it. This is an example of creation being linked up with Yahweh slaying the sea. You cut openings for springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You established the luminaries and the sun. You have fixed all the bounds of the earth. You made summer and winter. So immediately following this hearkening back to the victory of Yahweh over Yam, the sea, over the dragons, over Leviathan. These are probably multiple names for the same sort of concept of the chaos monster, or they could be different chaos monsters slayed by Yahweh. Right linked up with that is the creation. It's, it's, it's almost as if there's a parallel, you could say, to some degree, between the idea of Marduk slaying Tiamat and creating the world from that, the body of Tiamat, and the way in which this Israelite author is thinking about Yahweh slaying Leviathan and creating the world out of that. Those of you who are familiar with the Genesis narrative already know that the beginning of Genesis begins with cosmic waters, a sea, and that God creates out of dividing the sea in the Genesis narrative. So that even in the Genesis narrative, that may be in the background to some degree, but here it's quite explicitly linked up with the combat myth that we're already familiar with from our other literature. Take a look at another Israelite example. Take a look at Psalm 89, especially verses 5 to 18. Here it's more of a praising song that is being sung to Yahweh. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh. 
your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Remember that in ancient Mesopotamian mythology we were looking at with the combat myth, there's the idea of the assembly or society of the gods. Here too we see this sort of idea being reflected. Remember that the process by which Judean culture came to be monotheistic was a gradual process and that we have evidence in the Hebrew Bible obviously of the other gods that were involved around Yahweh at an earlier time in this process. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, or Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God feared in the counsel of the holy ones, great and awesome above all that are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Yahweh, your faithfulness surrounds you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, etc. So here the idea of Yahweh having slayed the chaos monster, in this case the sea, and also Rahab. This is another name that is used. In the Hebrew Bible we have Leviathan, Rahab, and Behemoth. These are the three ways in which a chaos monster comes into the picture. And in this case directly related to this slaying of the sea, once again, his creation here, and also the establishment of his kingship. The fact that Yahweh is king, the fact that Yahweh is supreme among the gods, is related to the fact that he has slayed the sea and slayed Rahab. Take a look at one final passage. We won't be able to look through every example of this in the Hebrew Bible, but this one final passage is quite important in the sense of what it gives us a glimpse forward to in terms of what begins to happen more fully in the apocalyptic worldview. Turn to Isaiah 51, verses, especially verses 9 to 11 here. Uh, we won't be able to give much background on Isaiah at this point. We'll get back to him later, though. We have to read a good section of Isaiah when we get to Israelite prophecy and its importance for apocalypticism. What I want to draw your attention to here is something that we'll begin to see very prominently within the apocalyptic worldview, but also in the other material leading up to, you could say, the apocalyptic worldview within Israelite traditions. And that is the idea of calling on Yahweh to repeat what he did when he slayed the chaotic God, when he slayed the chaos monster. Calling on God to do it again. Looking forward to a future time when God will once again slay chaos. As you can imagine, this has a direct relationship to apocalypticism. Verses 9 to 11 of Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. So hearkening back to what God has done, similar to these other times we've come across the combat myth. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea? Remember the sea as a personified figure here. The waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over. 
talking about the story of crossing the Red Sea there, as though it's God slaying the sea as well. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here, though, the mindset of the author is to call on Yahweh to do it again. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Yahweh. You did this in the past. Do it again, please. And as you can imagine, in the, in the context of a prophet like Isaiah, who is living in the time of the exile and the, in the destruction of the temple, that there's a call here for Yahweh to reestablish his temple and reestablish his people in their own land. Uh, which is an ongoing theme in the Hebrew Bible. So there you have it, some clear examples. We could have also looked at Job, but what's interesting about Job is that it has extensive, in chapters 40 to 41, extensive talk of both Behemoth and of Leviathan, is the way Job portrays those figures is less as sort of chaos gods, you could say, that were destroyed before creation, and more as created beings that God has control over. The point still being that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the most powerful being there is, even more powerful than Leviathan, but it's a quite different reuse uh, of the combat myth than what we've been looking at. So this has significance to the apocalyptic worldview that you'll begin to understand more fully as we get further into the course. But for now, let me say a few words about its importance. First of all, the similarities between the apocalyptic worldview and the combat myth are important to notice. And that is this focus on a battle of forces. In the Mesopotamian way of talking about it, however, it's order versus chaos. Order versus chaos in the apocalyptic worldview becomes good versus evil. There becomes a moral element that is not at all evident in these Mesopotamian and Canaanite examples of the combat myth nor is it evident at all in, uh, in the passages in the Hebrew Bible where the combat myth comes up in the mind of the author to express the power of God. It's, it's more focused on the issue of the kingship of Yahweh than it is on any issue of good and evil. But there's a cosmic battle, isn't there? This is the similarity we need to notice, the cosmic battle that becomes the heart, you could say, of the apocalyptic worldview. The battle imagery that goes along with that is extremely important for both the ancient combat myth, as we've been defining it today, and the apocalyptic worldview as it emerges within some Judean circles in the post-exilic period. The focus on beasts and monsters in apocalyptic literature is better understood when we realize that gods, chaos gods like Anzu, for example, is a eagle god with a lion head. The sea monsters that we've encountered both in the Babylonian Tiamat and in the Canaanite Yam are dragons or serpent-like gods with, in some cases, many heads. This sort of imagery we have depicting the chaotic threat gods in a beast-like form and in dragon-like form is important for understanding the apocalyptic worldview and the precise way in which these visions are expressed in apocalyptic literature. So the combat myth definitely played a role in how the apocalyptic worldview came to be what it was. But a key distinction to realize is this, that in the Mesopotamian examples of the combat myth, there is a notion that this will happen again. 
there is not the God successfully destroying chaos forever. There is instead the God successfully setting back chaos. But there are hints that chaos will return again. Well, the obvious examples being Baal having to kill both Yam and then having to kill Emot, that another god steps up and becomes the chaotic threat that needs to be set back. So this recurring element that is important within the combat myth is quite different than the sort of final battle idea that we have coming to the fore in the apocalyptic worldview. The apocalyptic worldview has an ongoing battle that may parallel more the recurring element that we've been talking about, but central to the apocalyptic worldview is the idea that God has a plan to intervene in a final way in order to destroy evil forever. This forever element is what is not there in the Mesopotamian combat myth. So at least you've got a sense now of the ways in which the combat myth of ancient Mesopotamia provides an antecedent for and provides the background, cultural background, for understanding some important components, though not all, of the apocalyptic worldview. We're starting to see the bits and pieces that converged within the apocalyptic worldview in a particular way in the post-exilic period. Next week, we'll turn to another cultural area in Iran and look at Zoroastrianism and consider the question of what does study of Zoroastrianism give us with regard to the background of apocalypticism? What, what role, if any, did Zoroastrianism play in the development of Judean apocalypticism? If you're interested in pursuing some further reading regarding the combat myth and the discussion today, I'd highly recommend Norman Cohn's Cosmos, Chaos, and the World to Come. This was a book that the students were reading in the course. They also will be doing a book review on that. I've also found very useful in my own preparations and in learning quite a lot about the combat myth, Neil Forsyth's The Old Enemy, Satan and the Combat Myth. The first few chapters in his book uh, dwell entirely on the combat myth. You may also want to read some of the sources for yourself, some of the ancient sources that provide us a glimpse into uh, the origins of apocalypticism, including these myths I've been talking about today. An older translation that nonetheless collects together an awful lot of material in one place is James Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament, where you'll find the uh, story of Zu or Anzu and um, some of the other uh, Mesopotamian mythology that we've been talking about. Now, there's also a collection of Canaanite myths by Gibson that is useful, Canaanite myths and legends, which provides translations of things like the story about Baal and Mot and Baal and Yam. So I'd recommend that translation as well. Finally, Stephanie Daly has an excellent, very up-to-date translation of most of the Mesopotamian material that may be of value here, but does not deal with any of the Canaanite material. Anyhow, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll come again to learn some more about where apocalypticism came from. Eventually, we'll be getting into apocalypticism itself. And I hope you come again.